A comical moment uh, happened, uh, well, these guys were rehearsing, and I kept thinking to myself, only a new community does this happen. These guys were rehearsing this song, and Angie was up here trying to teach the vocalists um, how to sing it and how to pronounce it right. And I'm standing back there, and Jeremy Hunsucker, who is a very Caucasian-looking man, <laughs> but he grew up in Hong Kong, right? So he speaks, I believe, fluent. Uh, Mandarin Chinese and uh, stood back there and he's all flustered he's like they're not pronouncing it right you know and I'm like well go up there then and, and, and correct it so he comes up here so here's this Caucasian man teaching I think in Indian you know you got Guatemalan you got Korean and other Caucasian folks how to pronounce Mandarin correctly and I thought only at new community right so thank you though um, boy, I was so blessed by uh, I was so blessed by the way you guys responded actually to 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 the worship in particular one of the songs and uh, we'll get back to the moment um, today we're launching a brand new sermon series rediscovering Jesus and let me go ahead and read the text that we'll we'll sort of look at today it's a it's a rather short text and as always with a lot of sermon series I try and lay some groundwork for what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon series so open your Bibles with me to Matthew. Chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, um, and we'll start reading from verse 1. Matthew 11, we find this exchange conversation between Jesus and John, the, uh, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, and uh, let me go ahead and read the passage, and we'll look at it today. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, He went on from there to teach and to preach in the town of Galilee. When John heard in prison, make a note of that, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect somebody else? Verse 4, Jesus replied to John the Baptist's disciples, Go back and report to John, make note of this, what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached, make note of this, to the poor. Verse 6, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And the NIV translation is a bit weak, actually. I prefer the NASB and the ESV translation in verse 6, which says, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is, Blessed are those. This, by the way, one commentator says is the weirdest beatitudes in all of the Testament. Blessed are those who's not offended by what I have to do and by what I have to say. And this is God's word. Um, Nobody seems to be more uh, uh, in vogue than Jesus these days. Have you noticed? He is perhaps the most controversial, most significant, can be argued, uh, figure in the history of the world. Um, Up to date, there are close to 2.1 billion people who worship Jesus as God. There have been more songs written about him. There have been more books written about him. There have been more paintings painted on him than any other figure in human history. His name 
Jesus in Hebrews uh, is, is, is Joshua, which literally means Yahweh, the Lord saves. And Christ, of course, is the anointed one or the Messiah. Um, we don't know a whole lot from the Bible about what he looked like. I remember growing up, I heard somebody, a pastor, uh, bring up a passage in Isaiah that says, and there was no beauty or majesty about him that we should be attracted to him. And this pastor concluded that Jesus was ugly, therefore, which I thought kind of odd, um, given one, and I'll talk about this more, pictures of Jesus that I saw, paintings of a, of a Scandinavian Jesus, apparently, with blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, and he wasn't so ugly, but I don't, I, don't, I don't quite remember having any pictures, for whatever reason, of Jesus who was ugly. I don't think that's what Isaiah meant when he said there was no beauty or majesty about him. I think what Isaiah was simply saying was that he was very average-looking. He's just an average-looking Jewish guy. Uh, we also know that perhaps he was uh, uh, fit physically, that he wasn't a weakling, uh, mainly because he worked with his hands for a living. He was a what? He was a carpenter, right? So he swung a hammer. He also probably walked a lot, given that um, they didn't have cars back then or public transportation. So he had to walk everywhere he went. And even though he didn't go uh, way outside his near hometown, he walked quite a bit. So physically, I think he was fit, average-looking. Um, but we're not sure about what he exactly looked like physically. What we do know, however, is that he was a carpenter and worked for about 30 years of his life. And then he began an itinerant preaching ministry where he went around saying that he was God. And that's when all crap hit the fan, if you will, okay? (laughs) Jesus went around saying that he was God. And let me also mention this. That is the crux, actually, of the argument today. The argument today, even amongst most brilliant atheists and agnostics, is not that Jesus was a man, that he was a good man, that he was a teacher. And let me also say this. Any intelligent person who actually studies history knows that a person, a figure by the name of Jesus, actually lived, that he is not some figment of somebody's imagination, that he was a real person. No no person would have a brain who's willing to read up denies the fact that a historical person by the name of Jesus lived. That's not where the problem is. The problem is when people start talking about, was he really God? Was he really God? And that's the argument today amongst historians, so on and so forth. Okay? And that's the question that you and I will have to wrestle with. And by the way, Christian or not, if you are not a Christian, by the way, I'm so glad that you're here. This journey that we're taking for the next eight, nine weeks, hopefully we'll do some revision to what you perceive Jesus to be. Uh, and for those of us that are Christians, and if you are sitting there going, can you possibly tell me anything about Jesus that I don't know yet, I haven't heard yet? Yes, most definitely. Because our view of Jesus, I believe, is one that is shallow, if at best, or superficial. I think it partly it's because the Gospels are easy to read, but really hard to grasp in depth, but also because, let's face it, many of the teaching that we've heard on Jesus or about Jesus tend to be skewed. Some of us come from backgrounds where social justice was really an important thing, and so we saw Jesus, well, we heard Jesus as this revolutionary, all about justice, this guy who went around and preached and ministered to the poor and marginalized, which is true, and we'll talk about that. But that's not the entirety of who he is. And for some of us, oh boy, this is big. Our picture of Jesus is that person that we prayed to when we were seven years old in our bedroom or at camp or with grandma, grandpa, because we grew up in church. We invited Jesus into our hearts as our Lord and Savior. And we're waiting until Jesus comes back or until 
we go to heaven. And what happens in between, which I talk about a lot, is sort of insignificant at best. Well, who is this Jesus? I had fun with this uh, this week and uh, looked at some, uh, some, some, some images of Jesus in our pop culture. Okay? Uh, music. Uh, Kanye West made famous, of course, a song called Jesus Walks, which is the third single of his debut album, The College Dropout. Um, the song is essentially a spiritual song, and yes, I am a huge fan of Kanye. Um, I'm just kidding, I'm really not. Uh, where an image of Christ the Redeemer, you guys have seen the video, the music video, I've seen the music video, right? Of Christ the Redeemer statue in uh, Rio de Janeiro appears on the single cover. Uh, here's a, a, a Here's a brief uh, uh, segment of, of the song, okay? This is cool, I think. Now, hear ye, hear ye, want to see thee more clearly. <laughs> I sound so lame. <laughs> I know you hear me when my feet get weary. I ain't here to argue about his facial features, which is good because we don't know. Or here to convert atheists into believers. I'm just trying to say, and this is the part I want to get to, I'm just trying to say the way school need teachers, if you, know, if you know it, he says the way Kathy Lee needed reaches, that's the way y'all need Jesus. Okay? So apparently to Kanye, uh, the way Kathy Lee needed reaches is the way we need Jesus, okay? Uh, Carrie Underwood and her song, Jesus Take the Wheel, which is the first single from her debut album, Some Hearts. Chorus, Jesus, take the wheel, take it from my hands, because I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go. Give me one more chance. Almost sounds like a, a worship praise song, doesn't it? Um, but it's, it's been incredibly popular, not just with country folks who like country music, but apparently uh, a wider audience. Uh, a number of songs, a number of musicians have written songs about Jesus. What about television shows? Television shows. Uh, he's been made to make an, uh, make an appearance or two on The Simpsons. For those who are fans of South Park, he appears, of course, to fight Saddam Hussein or Satan, or sometimes just as a talk show host. Uh, this TV show didn't stick around long enough to gain an audience, but do you remember the show, The Book of Daniel, on NBC, where Jesus made uh, a brief appearance, uh, and it was canceled due to public outcry. It was very controversial, apparently. Uh, for, for the more uh, edgier uh, TV fans of us, uh, the show Rescue Me on FX which stars Dennis, uh, Dennis Leary as a firefighter, Tommy Gavin. Jesus sort of appears as his conscience, right? This Catholic angst that he has. And so Jesus appears sort of as, as his conscience. Uh, several television movies, 1999, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who can forget, um, Judas 2004. You guys have no idea what shows I'm talking about, do you? Of course not. Nobody watches these shows, Okay. <laughs> Uh, for those of us fans of PlayStation, um, Jesus appears very briefly. By the way, I just did some research. Okay, so I'm spewing out stuff. I have no idea what I'm talking about. In the PlayStation 2 RPG, Zeno Sega Episode 3, anybody? Yes. <laughs> Although I'm told that Jesus appears only from behind and sort of far away in a heavily whited out scene. Okay, movies. Let's talk about movies. I'm not talking about Da Vinci Code or Passion of the Christ. It's more recent. Who can forget the 1890 movie, Passion Play, Abramagao, the early black and white silent film directed by the famous Henry C. Vincent. Remember him? 
starring Frank Russell. As, remember him? Remember him? Big fan, right? Brilliant career. Totally sorry. This, from 1898, we've had movies about Jesus. Six with Da Vinci Code. Where Jesus supposedly married to Mary Magdalene, who was portrayed as a pagan goddess and the true Holy Grail. And I'll talk about this next week, of course. Uh, most recently, Talladega Nights. Anybody? <laughs> I'll leave it at that, okay? Fashion. I was actually going to come today wearing a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, which has been made popular by the clothing line Urban Outfitters, um, endorsed by, amongst others, a number of people like Pamela Anderson, who, by the way, apparently goes to church now with her two kids and teaches Sunday school. Madonna uh, and Kanye West also gave it uh, some publicity. An L.A. company, not to be outdoed, called Teenage Millionaire, also makes T-shirts that say, Mary is my home girl. Um, here's some quotes. What are famous people, maybe infamous people, have said throughout history about Jesus? Frederick Nietzsche, who some of us know, uh, one of the more notable atheists, German scholar and philosopher, and I'll quote him from time to time. This is what he said about Jesus. Jesus died too soon. If he had lived to my age, he would have repudiated his doctrine. John Lennon, a singer, songwriter, political activist, said, I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something inside all of us. I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. He also said at one time, we're more popular than Jesus right now. Um, I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Bob Dylan, I just threw this in there, singer, songwriter, folk singer. Uh, he said, being noticed can be a burden. Jesus got himself crucified because he got himself noticed. So I disappear a lot. Uh, Thomas Jefferson the third president of the United States, author, many other things. This is what he said. He said, the authors of the Gospels were, unle- uh, 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 were uh, unlettered and ignorant men, and the teachings of Jesus have come to us mutilated, misstated, and unintelligible. This is the reason why I have problems with people who just, you know, uh, kind of blanket, in a blanket way, say that the founding fathers were committed Christians. Not really. Albert Einstein, German physicist who developed, who developed the theory of uh, relativity, he said, it is possible that we can do greater things than Jesus, for what is written in the Bible about him is poetically embellished. Mikhail Gorbachev, once famous, he said that Jesus was the first socialist. Douglas Adam, famous British comic author and professor radical atheist, said, 2,000 years ago, one man got nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be if everybody was just nice to each other for a change. By the way, by the way, this is a prevalent view in our world today about Jesus. Do you know that? That Jesus was this nice teacher whose most profound thing was we all got to just get along. We all got to love each other, you know? By the way, if you believe that, you're out of history, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Gandhi, an Indian political leader, said, I cannot say that Jesus was uniquely divine. He was as much God as Krishna. He was as much God as, as Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. World religions, 
Let me talk about this real quick. I'm almost done here, guys. Hang in there with me. World religions. What have some world, famous world religions say about Jesus? And this is so important because I am not assuming that even for those of us who profess to believe in Christ are sitting here today, and if I were to ask you, what is the difference between Christianity and what Jesus had to teach between what Muhammad said, what Buddha said, what anybody else said? The unfortunate thing is even within the Christian world, there is this lack of clarity. This is what world religions have it to say. Baha'i faith, what they say about God, uh, Jesus, that he was a good man, uh, that he was a manifestation of God and prophet, preceded by Muhammad. His purpose, Baha'i faith says to God's will as part of progressive revelation to humanity. What Buddhism says about Jesus, that he was just a good man, that he was wise and enlightened who was taught similar things to Buddha. His purpose, to teach humanity wisdom and the way to enlightenment. Christian science, what do they say? Jesus was a good man, wise man, actually attuned to the divine Christ. He wasn't Christ, he was attuned to him. His purpose, to teach humanity to heal and to overcome death. Hinduism, who was Jesus? Well, views vary, he could have been a lot of people. Who, what was his person? It was incarnation of God akin to Krishna or wise man. What was his purpose? really know. Islam, Jesus was a man, two prophets sent by God, but since superseded by Muhammad. Do you see the, do you see the, the, the line of reasoning? Okay. What was his purpose? To will in a progressive revolution. Jehovah's Witness, they believe about Jesus. A God was an angel. That he was a son of God. Actually, his purpose to teach Mormonism was a good man, son of God, savior, originally the one of the spirit beings that all humans used to be. He had a physical body, though. What was his purpose to teach about God, provide a model for living, die sacrificially for sin? There is a theme in major religions about Jesus, Unitarian or Universalist. Jesus is a good man, a great teacher, faith healer, incarnation of God's love. What was his purpose? To demonstrate God's love for humanity and to teach about justice and compassion. The question that we have to wrestle with is who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Uh, there was a brief exchange where this question came up. It was between Jesus and the disciples. In verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They are responding to what major religions have said. Who is Jesus? Well, people are saying that he's a prophet. He's a great man. He's a great moral teacher. He's got some unbelievable things to say. And Jesus says what? But what about you? Who do you say I am? And of course, Peter, who can't keep his mouth shut, says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And as funny as that Jesus says, Peter, that's such a good answer that you couldn't possibly have come up with that, right? <laughs> so God gave it to you. Peter's going, darn, I can't. The question is, who do you say that I am? Well, in the passage that we looked at today, in Matthew 11, Jesus, as we begin this journey, you guys, I think 
begins to reveal to us this question. Who do you say? Who, who, who is he? Who is he? And here's, here's why this is important. And let me just say this, and then we'll look into this passage, okay? The reason why this is important is because of this. What do you think about Jesus, Christian or not? And who you say Jesus is will dictate and affect every part of your life. What you think of Jesus, who you think Jesus is, what you think he came to do will affect every single nook and cranny of your life. Matter of fact, many of us, the way we live out our lives today, Christian or not, is a direct reflection of who we think Jesus is. Can we rediscover Jesus in this time, the sermon series that we have? In this passage in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus begins to reveal this in this interesting exchange between him and John the Baptist's disciples. Now notice something. Notice that the main character outside of Jesus in this passage is John the Baptist. We're going to do some revisionist history on John the Baptist because many of us have never seen the side of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is struggling. John the Baptist is anxious. John the Baptist is concerned. John the Baptist is doubting the identity of Jesus. Yes, he is. So much so that he tells his disciples, go and ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect somebody else? Remember, this is the same John who when Jesus came and said, I am not worthy to untie his handle. This is the same John the Baptist who said to his own disciples, go follow him because he is the one. This is the same John the Baptist who was the forerunner to Jesus. And yet, he is in a state He is at a point in his life where he is doubting the very identity of Jesus. He is very doubting the very identity of who Jesus is. So much so he sends disciples to say, are you the one? What's going on? What's going on? Two things happening to John. Two things happening to John in this passage that prompted him to struggle. First, do you notice where he is? Where is he? He's in what? He's in prison. He's in prison. Why is he in prison? Well, he did, he did a number of things, but the reason why he's in prison is because he went a little too far criticizing the king, Herod. Herod married his brother's wife. Okay? And John the Baptist pretty much spoke up and said, that's not right. He didn't like that. His wife really didn't like that. He's in prison. His life is hanging by a thread. He knows that he's probably going to die soon. Not only that, but he was at one time at the height of his career. Everybody, large crowds followed him. Now he's irrelevant. Everybody followed him. Nobody's heard of John. He's in prison. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's in prison. His life is hanging by a thread. He's in prison. He's struggling. He is suffering. In other words, John is struggling with the identity of Jesus because his life is not going very well. Anybody been there? One of the number of reasons why we struggle with the identity of Jesus, Christian or not, is when our life sort of takes a turn. It's when we, quote, unquote, find ourselves in prison. It's when things are going bad. And the question that John is wrestling with this is this. Can you really be God? Can you really be the Messiah? Can you really be the Savior? Look at my life. I'm in prison. Look at my life. I'm irrelevant. Look at my life. Nobody is following me. Jesus, are you really the one? Are you really the one? Another reason why he's struggling with the identity of Jesus, we find in verse 6, he's offended by him. He's offended by what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. 
By the way, can I just say this? You have not become a true Christian unless you have dealt with the offensiveness of Jesus. If your image of Jesus is this warm and cuddly, my son has a security blanket, he calls it his wuv-wuv, this wuv-wuv, you know, he takes it with him wherever he goes, and it provides this warm comfort. If that's your view of Jesus, you have not dealt with the real Jesus, because the real Jesus, if you really look at him, is offensive. And John is offended. And we'll get to that in a moment. It's a little more subtle. But the two reasons why John is wrestling with the identity of Jesus is the same reason why people in our world today wrestle with Jesus. How can Jesus really be God when there's so much suffering in the world? How can Jesus really be God when there's so much injustice, so much evil in the world? How can Jesus be God when my life is going so bad? How can Jesus be God and let this happen to me? Hmm? Secondly, How can Jesus be God when he is so offensive emotionally and intellectually by who he is and what he does? How can Jesus possibly be God? I'm wrestling with that. John is wrestling with that. Anybody been there? This is so relevant for us today. John is wrestling with the identity of Jesus because of his life and because of the offensive claims of Jesus. He feels just like you and just like me. You know what's wonderful? Jesus doesn't say, ha, you go back and tell John, I'm disappointed. You go back and tell John, I'm surprised at you. After all that I've done, you know what Jesus does? He doesn't rebuke. He doesn't criticize. He goes, let me give you a thoughtful answer of why I am who I am. Let's look at John's question a little more deeply. And see how Jesus reveals himself, okay? John's question first is, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one who is to come? I find John's question absolutely startling. Absolutely startling. You know why? Think about this with me. Think about this with me. Think for a moment. When John says, are you the one? He's asking the identity of Jesus in a way that's totally different most of us. Here's how. John doesn't go to Jesus and say, Jesus Are you the one? Because if you get me out of prison, then I'll know that you're the one. In other words, when John goes to Jesus, he says nothing about his problems. He says nothing about his issues. He says nothing about what he's struggling with. He simply goes to Jesus and says, are you the one? And that's totally different from the way many of us and people in our world today approach Jesus when we want to find out who he is. We go to him from a very problem-centered approach. How? Here's how most people in our world do today. I'm interested in Christianity. I'm interested in Jesus. But here's a question. Um, I've had really a lot of bad abusive relationships, and I have really low self-esteem. If I go to Jesus, will he boost my self-esteem? Will I feel better about myself? Here's how most people approach Jesus. My conversations. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, grad- I'm done with school, and I'm going to law school. Law school's tough, finances, all these stuff. You know, if I become a Christian, if I embrace Christianity, will Jesus help me? Will he kind of support me through this so I'll be able to get by it? Sex. You know, I have some views about sex, and uh, if I become a Christian, if I follow Jesus, will he support what I think about sex and how I want to live my life? In other words, the way that people approach Jesus is from the standpoint of if I believe in Jesus, if I follow Jesus, Will he help me solve my problems? Will he deal with my issues? Will he give me answers to the things that I'm looking for? You think think non-Christians do this? Christians do this too. You know how? It's phrased a little differently, but we go, I'll serve you if. I'll worship you if. I'll love you if. 
I'll love you if, if I'm in that relationship that I've been longing for. I'll serve you if, if I get the perfect job, perfect school, perfect career that I've been looking for. God, I'll follow you, Jesus. I will follow you all the days of my life if my future turns out to be what I want it to be. And if you think you don't do that with Jesus, look at the way we respond when that relationship disintegrates. How can you, how can you, are you, when we don't get the career that we want to, I can't believe I served you all these years. I've done all these things for you. We approach Jesus from a very problem-centered way. And we say, Jesus, if you'll help me. Jesus, if you'll walk me through. Jesus, if you will give me the things, the solutions to life that I'm looking for, then I believe you're God. That's how we approach Jesus. You know what Jesus does? This is incredible. His answer isn't yes or no. He's saying, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. When you say, are you Jesus? I believe if you are, by the way, you solve my problems. I believe that you are if you do what I ask. I believe that if you are, if you support my lifestyle and do and, and, and kind of have me do what I want to do. Jesus, wrong question. Why? When you come to Jesus and say, I believe you're God. I believe you're Jesus. I'll follow you if my life turns out the way I want it to. If the way I want to live my life is, is, is where I want to go. If, if you'll support who I want to be. Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong question because, because. How can you know what your life would be like or should be like until you know the author of life? How can you possibly know who you are, identity? How can you possibly know what you were created to be unless you know the one who created you, not as an accident, but with purpose and with design? How can you possibly say, I know exactly what my life ought to be like and how I ought to live it, unless you understand and know the one who put you on earth with a specific reason and purpose? Are you guys tracking so far? You're asking the wrong question when you go, are you the one if? John simply comes and says, no conditions. Are you the one? No conditions. Are you the one? Let me put it another way. When you come to Jesus with conditions, you're not really coming with questions. See, people go, I'm still confused about Jesus. I don't really know who Jesus is. I'm still, I've still got all kinds of things about Jesus, Christian or not, and I don't have any clarity. And I'm asking God. God's going, you don't have any clarity. You don't have answers because you're not coming in with questions. You're coming to me with conditions. You're coming to me with orders. And when you come to me with orders, when you come to me with, here's what I need you to do, God's saying, is there a question? Do you have a question? Many of us approach Jesus from a radically problem-centered sort of approach. If you do what I need you to do, I'll know that you're God. Come on, can we be honest this morning? Do we do that? Do we do that? And Jesus says, come with questions. Now with orders, commands, statements. Because when you do, you're not going to gain clarity. You're not going to get answers. I've talked about this before. The picture that I have in my mind is two thieves on the cross uh, next to Jesus. And the one has, one says what? Are you the Christ? If you are, then save yourself and save me. Radically problem-centered approach. I believe that you're the son of God if you get me out of the cross. I believe you're the son of God if my life works out the way I want it to. And the other thief says, are you the one? 
And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Are you asking questions or are you giving orders? Christian and not. When you say, I want a relationship with you, as long as you do what I know ought to be done, Jesus says, that's not a relationship. That's not a relationship. Come on, be honest. Be honest this morning. Are you really interested in who Jesus is? And if you are, are you going to him simply saying, are you the one? Are you saying, I believe that you're the one if? Hmm? The second thing about John's question that clues us in on the identity of Jesus. You notice, he says, um, are you the one who is to come? Or, what does he say? Should we look for another? Follow me here. John doesn't say, are you the one who is to come? Should we stop looking? He says, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? In other words, here's what John is saying. You'll never stop looking for Jesus, even if you reject Jesus. What do I mean? There will always be another Jesus that you'll look for. There will always be another Jesus that you long for. You and I will never say, are you the one? Because if you're not, I'm going to stop looking. Jesus says, the way that our souls were created, I talked about this last week, there is an imprint in our DNA of our soul that says, are you the one? Because if I reject you, Jesus, I am not going to stop looking. I'm going to continue to look to fill that void that was meant to be filled by you. There's another Savior. The question isn't, are you my Savior? The question is, what or who ultimately is our Savior? And John says, if you're not the one, I'm going to continue to look, so I need to know, are you the one? And this morning, our souls, our hearts, our lives say the same thing. We were created to worship something. We were created to give worth to something, Christian and not. And if Jesus is not the one that we're looking for, if Jesus is not the one that we're searching for, our hearts and our souls are looking for something. It's looking for something to be that Jesus. Looking for something to be our Savior. We will always find salvation. It may not be in Jesus, but it'll be in something else. And the question is, what is your salvation? Who or what is your salvation? Who do you look to to give you identity? Who do you look to to give you a sense of self-worth? Who do you look to to say, I am somebody? I am somebody because I'm a good mother. I am somebody because I'm smart. I am somebody (laughs) because I fall off the stage all the time. I am somebody. Who do you say you are? Christians and not, will you please listen? Look, look. I have people who walk into my office and they'll say, flat out, they'll say, a number of issues, whether it be religious, they'll say, I don't know, Peter, what I'll do if. I don't know what I'll do if this relationship doesn't work out. I don't know what I'll do if I don't turn out to be the mother, the father that I want to be. I don't know what I'll do if this ministry opportunity. I don't know what I'll do if those people don't accept me and receive me. I don't know what I'll do if. What they're saying, and you might go, that's just emotionally dependent. That's just, that's just unhealthy. 
That's the longing of your heart. That's the longing of my soul. Are you the one, Jesus? And if we reject him, you and I will look for something else. What is your salvation? What's your salvation? Who do you turn to? What do you turn to to say, as long as I have that, as long as I have that, are you the one? Or should we look for something else? Am I making any sense? Okay. It's one of those, hmm, kind of mornings. Okay. I love John's questions, but I love Jesus' answer even more. Because Jesus' answer isn't, how dare you approach me like that? Jesus' answer isn't, how long do I need to teach you? Jesus' answer is kind, it's firm, straightforward. What's his answer? Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf fear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed are those who do not take offense at me. What do we learn about Jesus from his answer, about the identity of who he is? Here's the first thing. You ready? He says, those who come to really know me are those who, listen, listen, who feel my offense, who see my offense. Who, who, who are struggling with my offense, but don't take offense. Okay? You need to sit there. You need to stare at Jesus long enough to go, ah, oh, oh, and walk away going, okay. <laughs> He's literally saying, you need to get to a place where you're wrestling with my offensiveness, but don't take offense. But on the other hand, listen, if you are somebody who's wrestling, feeling, seeing Jesus' offensiveness, and you completely walk away going, I don't want to have anything to do with somebody who is that offensive, then Jesus says, you're not seeing the whole picture. You're not seeing the whole picture. So you need to find this balance where you need to be offended by Jesus, but don't take offense and walk away. But you also need to wrestle in that point of tension. When's the last time you were offended by Jesus? Let's be honest. Come on. When was the last time you were offended by Jesus? A long time ago, isn't it? Matter of fact, ever? Have you ever been offended by who Jesus is and what he had to say? The problem is for those of us that grew up in church, Jesus was never offensive. For those of us who didn't grow up in church, we've been there. When we heard something about Jesus, we're like, that is offensive. But for those of us who grew up in church, that's why this sermon is just as much for you as it is for people who don't know Jesus. Jesus, you gotta feel his offensiveness. You gotta see his offensiveness. You gotta feel it to the core. But don't take offense. If you see Jesus as sort of sentimental, cuddly bear, you're seeing the wrong Jesus. But if you also see Jesus as such an offensive guy, offensive person that you don't have anything to do with him, you're also not seeing the whole picture. And Jesus is actually saying to John and saying to you and me today, it's a good thing that you're feeling offense. Sit on it. Feel it. Feel it to your bones. But don't walk away. Why would John be offended? Why would John be offended? This passage is so enlightening. John's offended for two reasons. One, he's offended because of the claims of Jesus. See, John's a good first century Jew. 
And as a good first century Jew, even though he thought that Jesus was Messiah, he never thought Jesus would go around saying what he was saying. He never thought Jesus would be a megalomaniac. I looked up the definition of megalomaniac. It says a psychopathological disorder or condition characterized by delusional fantasies of wealth, of power, and of omnipotence. In other words, John is offended by Jesus because he thinks that Jesus is struggling with delusions of grandeur. He's walking around saying stuff like this. By the way, real couple things. What I struggle with, what I struggle with, are bright people who say, you know what, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's something his disciples said that he said. Are you kidding me? Read the New Testament. Read the Gospels. You can't pass a page without Jesus uttering these words in one form or another. I'm God. Say that again. I'm God. Say that again. I'm God. Can I say another thing? Oh, I'll come to this one. Okay. Here, here's, here's just a, uh, can, you, uh, can you guys put it up there? Here's just snippets, okay? I'm not even going to, because I, I would literally read for like two hours of the periods and passages where Jesus said, uh, it's just co- context, past, text passages. Look, John chapter 8, verse 57, 59. The Jews therefore said to Jesus, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He's simply saying, I am the pre-existent, eternal. And Michelle, did you just clap? That's not how the Jews would have responded. Here's how the Jews responded. Therefore, they picked up stones because they wanted to stone him. Why? Because that was the heresy of all heresies. To say, I'm God? What? John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And again, they didn't go like Michelle. Good. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. John chapter 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Could he have made it any clearer? By the way, can I say this? I'm going to talk about this more later. People say that it claims that Christianity is exclusive. It's narrow-minded. I think I know what they're getting at, but those are wrong phrases to use. An illustration that I heard a pastor use is this. If somebody discovers a cure for cancer... And says, this is the cure for cancer. You want to live? Take this. And people come and say, that's narrow-minded. <laughs> that's exclusive. No, it's not. It's either right or wrong. It's not narrow-minded. So if you deal and struggle with Christianity, please accuse us of being right or wrong. Say, that's a farce. Give me a break. But to say it's narrow-minded? It's either right or wrong. It's not narrow-minded or exclusive. John 6, I am the bread of life. I'm not even going to, I mean, go uh, on and on and on. Jesus went all over the place and claimed that he was God. And John is struggling because, because like a first century Jew, God was a transcendent spiritual being. John, John, a good first century Jew, believed that, that, that God could not possibly take on the form of a human body. But here's what he's wrestling with. Look, if Jesus is claiming that he is God, if Jesus is claiming that he is God, John knows that he's either wicked or crazy. This is C.S. Lewis's argument, right? Jesus is wicked or crazy. Why? Because he's wicked. He knows that he's not God, and yet he is... He is falsely uh, uh, bringing everybody to believe that he is God. And eventually they'll even give his life because they think he's God. 
So he's the most wicked person going around knowing that he's not God, but, but intentionally lying, or he's crazy. On par with the poached egg, as C.S. Lewis says, right? He's, either, he's crazy. He thinks he's God. He's either crazy or he's, he, 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 he's wicked. Or, John knows, he's got to be who he says he is. And here's the thing. John knows that if Jesus is who he says he is, it makes a radical difference for his entire life. Because John knows that if Jesus really is God, there isn't a single aspect of his life that won't be touched by him. John knows that if Jesus really is God, it's pulling him into a commitment, it's pulling him into a radical life obedience, it's pulling him into an entirely different thing than what he himself even imagined. He knows that if Jesus really is God, C.S. Lewis' example, that Jesus isn't coming into his life to say, you live in a shack, but let me do some touch-ups here. You know, a little paint job here, a little paint job here. Jesus, come on, just add a little thing to areas of my life where I really need you. John knows that if Jesus really is God, he's coming with his bulldozer. He's leveling that shack because Jesus says, I am building a castle fit for a king. John knows that if Jesus really is God, there's nothing that he can't give, but there's also nothing that he can't demand from you. Nothing. John knows that if Jesus really is God, being in a relationship with him looks entirely different from what he had ever imagined. That's where many of us are today. We say Jesus is God, but our lives don't say that Jesus is God. If Jesus really is God, then he's your king, and he's your Lord. He's the creator of the universe. If Jesus really is your God, then he can make demands on every aspect, every sphere of your life. Nothing in our lives is untouched by him. And we radically relate to him differently. We say, you are the one. And everything in my life relates to you that way. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus Lord? See, this is the reason why I'm offended when people say, Jesus is a nice teacher. He was a good moral teacher. What he had to say, everybody, can we please love each other? Can we please do these things together? Mr. Rogers, if you believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher and said some nice things, like I said, you're making a mockery out of history because why in the world would anybody want to crucify Mr. Rogers? Why 2,000 years ago did an entire group of people say, kill him on the cross because he had some nice things to say. He was a great teacher. He said, you know what? Can we all just get along with each other? They crucified him on the cross because he came and said, if I am God, what I say relates to every aspect of your life and the entire world history is changing. If I am God, the course of world history is changing. If I am God, you don't relate to your life the way you used to. If I am God, I'm your king. I'm your Lord. Everything in your life yields to me. Submits to me. I can give you anything, but I can demand anything. That's offensive. To the modern mind that says, I am the God of my world. I run this ship. 
I drive this car. I'm in control. Jesus comes along and says, if I'm God, that totally changes. To me, this is the reason why non-Christians should rightly be offended. You got to wrestle with this. Please, none of this. Jesus, come into my heart. I'm not making fun of this, but say, come into my heart. I give you my life as my Lord and Savior. And now the rest of my life, I live the way I want to. The rest of my life, I'm going to be a good Christian. Are you kidding me? Jesus came and said, I demand all because I gave all. Is he God? Speaking of all, here's the second reason why John is offended. The cross. Not just the claims of Jesus being God and what that revolutionized, what that radically but the cross of Christ. How so? Jesus didn't come in strength. He didn't come in power. Like all the major religious leaders that have started these major religions, they all came in strength. Buddha, Muhammad, they all came in power. What do I mean? They said, I'm a great leader. I've got these phenomenal things to say. Now do as I say. Do as I do. And you will be saved. Do as I say. Do as I do. I have left you a great model. I have left you great teachings. I have left you great examples. Jesus comes and says, in weakness, you're so weak, you're so helpless, you're so powerless, you can't model me. You can't follow me. The only thing that will save you is not a set of teachings. The only thing that will save you is not a model. The only thing that will save you is if I die in your place. There's never been a gift like the cross. Let me give you an illustration of how this is offended. I was walking through Barnes and Nobles, came to a book called how to, how to Start a Conversation and Make Friends. What if I bought that book and I gave it to you for Christmas one day? <laughs> you know, here, Anna, here's a great book. I think you'll appreciate it, <laughs> right? Anna opens the book and it says, how to start a conversation and make, what? Some gifts can't be accepted unless you're willing to admit that you have a need. You can't accept the gift of the cross until you're willing to admit, I have a need. I can't save myself. I can't better myself. I don't have hope for me. And Jesus comes along and says, precisely, I came in weakness and I died for you. I lived a life you should have lived and I died the death that you should have died. And the way that you're saved, it's not by following a set of teachings. It's not by following a set of rules. The way you're saved is by placing your faith in me so that my righteousness, my works, and my love becomes yours. And the only person who can accept that is one who is going to humble themselves and say, I have that need. I have that need. I have that need. Do you know why this is so powerful? Listen, I'll end with this. And why you need to do it. Because we live in a world today where, again, that's offensive to people. People say, give me religion. Don't give me the gospel. Give me religion. What are they saying? Give me religion. Give me a set of rules so that I can do what I need to do and I'll be all right. Give me a set of rules. Give me religion. But the gospel comes and says, you can't. So I came and did it for you. And you have to admit, though, that you need it. Uh Uh-uh. You have to admit that you're weak. I'm not weak. You have to admit that you're not that smart. I'm smart. You have to admit that you're not that strong. 
And the world says, forget it then. Forget it. The cross is offensive because it comes in weakness. But here's why it's so beautiful. It's so powerful. Listen, and why you need to come to groups with that. Listen, listen, listen. By the way, can we, can we just all agree that we've done away with the Mr. Rogers picture of Jesus, okay? Because you're making a mockery out of history. They wouldn't have crucified him if he was Mr. Rogers, okay? And can we also, can we also put away with, listen, the cross. Why is it so powerful? Why do you, look, look, let me put it this way. If Jesus would have come and said, here are a bunch of rules, do it. Or I love everybody, and, and, and we all need to just kind of love each other, everyone. Will that change you? Will that transform your life? Will that, I mean, really, really. It, you're somebody who struggles with self-esteem. You feel like you're dirt. You feel like you're dirt. I mean, you absolutely have the worst low self-esteem. If some God came, if some figure came and said to you, I think you're all right. That's a great suggestion. Would that transform you? Jesus comes with the cross and says, you are of infinite value and worth, so much so that I died for you and I loved you like that. That will change you. If you really believe that this God, this Jesus, loved everybody, we're all the same, we're all going to heaven, will that transform you? Or will the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, I loved you so much, I loved you like that. What will change you? The three most maybe powerful words in life, I love you. Hmm? Do you know why when we hear God loves you, falls off, Jesus loves you, nah, do you know why? Because it all depends on the one who is saying it. It depends on the one who is saying it. If the person that's saying it is somebody that you think is of, of, of highest worth, highest value, somebody who melts your heart when that person says, I love you, it'll melt your heart. Why is it that when we hear God loves you, Jesus loves you, our hearts are not melted? How do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? How do you see We'll pick this up starting next week, and I'll talk a little bit about why he couldn't have possibly been a crazy lunatic. Look at the stuff that he said. It's powerfully changed course of human history. Would somebody on par with the poached egg say the kinds of profound things he said? Furthermore, a wicked person, a megalomaniac, Jesus intentionally says, I hung out with the poor. I give myself to the marginalized. Throughout the course of human history, there's never been anybody with delusions of grandeur who thought they were something, who chose to give their lives to the least of these. They always wanted to hang out with the kings, with the princes. But Jesus, to the least of these. Let me go ahead and with this. Quote from C.S. Lewis. A man was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice, friends. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You could kill him with a demon or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and you can call him God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that as an option to us. He did not intend to. He's either God or is he wicked or crazy? The evidence in the next seven, eight weeks will show he's God. And if he is, you better be prepared to be offended by him. But at the same time, be prepared to have your heart swept up by your Savior. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a moment this morning. If you're not a Christian, can I just encourage you? Call it a prayer, call it whatever you want to. Can I just encourage you just to ask that simple question without conditions? Are you the one? Are you the one? Show me. Show me. If you're a Christian here this morning, your prayer needs to be, you are the one. And that changes everything. I give my life to you. Simply, because of who you are. Not what you do, not what you give, not anything else. Simply because of who you are. Father, that is the prayer of my heart. That is the prayer for our church. Lord, as we begin this journey, we pray and ask God for your leading. Speak to us, minister to us, Grant this wisdom and insight into the very life of Jesus. Help us to see you for who you are. No conditions, no barriers, God. We simply come and say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know you. And we all stand together as we close in response. Jesus, you know that uh, this has been a huge journey for me. As I peel away notions of who I think and thought you were, many of us are in the same boat. Grant us the grace to come to that place where we can say, you love me like that. You love me like that. That that will radically transform our lives. May the power of the Holy Spirit and the living presence of God go with you. Son of God, daughter of God, go forth this week and live out your life in radical obedience for he whom loved you radically expects no less. Take that as a bold encouragement challenge to go forth 
empowered by his grace and his mercy and his unfailing, unconditional love for you, attempt and achieve great things for him. He is your king. He is your Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week. And bring somebody with you next time you come. Have a great week, you guys.